0: I'm Paul Musto, and welcome back to another episode of Siemens Startups, a podcast series where we speak with entrepreneurs to gain insight on how they turn their innovative dreams into successful companies. So I have to say, I've been really excited and looking forward to today's episode. Today, we are speaking with Tabor McCallum. Tabor is the current co-founder and co-CEO of Space Perspective, a human spaceflight company planning to take people and payloads to the edge of space by balloon. Tabor was also a founding member of the Biosphere 2 Design, Development, Test, and Operations team and a crew member in the first two-year mission. And as I've learned this morning, it was actually two years and 20 minutes is uh, what I learned. So you actually stayed there longer than you had to. Tabor, welcome. And again, I cannot express how much I have been looking forward to speaking with you. Not only do you have a fascinating company, but you also have an incredible past. Our audience is in for a real experience, I think, today. So let's just start with an introduction. Can you please tell our audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Thank you for that uh, warm introduction and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to uh, be on the podcast today. If you were to sort of summarize my background, it, it's really sort of at the intersection of, of life, biology, commercial endeavors, and space. And so spent a long time at sea, understanding and traveling around the earth. Did the Biosphere 2 project, which really you know, sort of brought how we do life support and regenerative systems to a new level. And then I've been in the space industry doing a series of projects like uh, water recycling systems that are now on the space station and uh, setting the uh, world record on a project called StratEx for the highest altitude a person has ever gone in a balloon. Uh, so it's a lot of Technology that enables us to go new places, explore new areas, and uh, really expand human thought.
0: Yeah, and you know what I found really incredibly fascinating is that all of these projects and, and initiatives that you've been part of are interrelated uh, in a very connected way. And I guess that word "connected" is really important as I, I as I listen to other you know events that you spoke at. So maybe we start with the biosphere too, and, and talk a little bit about that, and kind of what that meant for you. And sure. So
1: in the early '80s, we began as, as people on this planet to realize that we were having a direct impact on the environment. We we saw ozone holes. There was data that showed you know an increasing levels of carbon dioxide. There was lots of data showing that the temperature of the planet was changing, you know, in relation to that carbon dioxide. So we were seeing a rapid set of changes beginning. And Buckminster Fuller, who wrote, you know, the operating manual for Spaceship Earth and, you know, did a lot of really interesting work in structures, essentially double dog dared us to build a biosphere, to replicate in miniature the systems that are the Earth's life support system as a way both to travel in space, but also to better understand our planet. And so that project became Biosphere 2, Biosphere 1 being the Earth, where uh, we set up a bioregenerative system that uh, supported eight people for two years and uh, in 20 minutes, uh, and then other crews after us. That really set the bar for bioregenerative closed ecosystems. So, this Biosphere 2 had a small farm, a little ocean, a rainforest, a desert, and it's now still operating in Arizona, doing a lot of very interesting uh, global climate change related research.
0: From what I understand, it actually had a connection to potentially space application in the future, right? Even when it was developed.
1: Absolutely. So, the yeah, you know, we don't have any other way of making food than growing it ourselves. And if you're going to grow food, then that makes your oxygen and creates systems for recycling water. So we made a fully bioregenerative system that recycled water, that created oxygen, that made
0: food, and kept the crew alive uh, inside. And actually, the construction of it was quite fascinating as well, right? Because it was it was truly hermetically sealed. It was completely sealed, right? Yes, we, we had about 8% per year gas exchange,
1: which is orders of magnitude tighter sealed than the International Space Station, for example, and really allowed us to do research on the biogeochemical cycling inside. It's one and a half hectares of stainless steel at the bottom and a large glass and steel structure over the top containing about 6
0: million cubic feet. So it's a, it's a big structure. I actually I've never been there. So when I go out and, out that way, I'm going to make sure I make a visit over there. It's also I don't know if you met your wife and co-founder, but uh, it's also where Jane Pointer is also the co-founder, co-CEO of Space Perspective, correct? We actually met
1: in a related project in Fort Worth and then spent almost a year uh, at sea on a research vessel as part of the training program for Biosphere 2. And then uh, we both came to the project as crew members, Jane in charge of the agriculture so she made sure everyone had plenty to eat and I was in charge of the air and water and chemical cycling so uh, between us we had
0: uh, air water and food. Uh, it's a fascinating project. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, you were uh, associated with the Commercial Spaceflight Federation. I found this somewhat interesting because you know, commercial spaceflight I think for for most of us is as a relatively new concept, right? So What is that organization set up to do and what is the charter for that organization?
1: So I'm the uh, immediate past chair of the Commercial Space Flight Federation and it's been around for a long time, decades now, uh, working on commercial space. Essentially, it's an industry organization whose charter is to further commercial space, especially uh, human commercial space flight. And largely that is done through establishing policy, working on legislation and uh, making sure that the regulatory environment is set up and also the where possible, for example, the NASA funding is there for commercial space. So when when we all got to enjoy and really be fascinated by the inspiration for mission, the regulatory environment that allowed that to happen was in no small measure created by the Commercial Space Flight Federation. So it's sort of in the background where all of the real commercial space organizations work together to enable proper legislation, get the right policy, get funding in place. It's the place where all these companies come together and really form a team to create the environment that we all work in.
0: So there's an element of collaboration, even though there's some level of competitiveness as to who makes it to space first or who provides first commercial space travel. There's a level of collaboration that's going on as well, right, to enable that whole commercial space travel. We like
1: to be competitive because that makes us sharper. But we all really, I think, for the most part, collaborate in especially in areas of policy. And so, you know, you'll be at the table with Blue Origin, SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, Space Perspective, and others all working on developing and working with the policies and and the way the FAA regulates our industry. And so uh, it's a very collaborative environment at that level.
0: It's good to hear. Yeah. And just in terms of the space travel, you know, when I first, and we'll get, we'll talk about space perspective here in a second. But, you know, looking at the various forms of commercial travel for, you know, average consumer, At first, I was like, oh, I said, you know, your application is, I said, I couldn't even imagine that. But then when I think about it, it's like, it's much better than having a a rocket strapped to my back and (laughs) and sent up there, right? So, uh, but we'll talk about that in a second. Or maybe we should just kind of transition to that now. Tell us a little bit about Space Perspective. So, the
1: fundamental idea behind Space Perspective is to give the quintessential astronaut experience uh, to as many people as possible. And so when you talk with astronauts about what's the quintessential experience, I've never heard them say, oh, it's the rocket ride, or it's the high-speed hypersonic reentry, or you don't even hear much about microgravity and floating around. It sort of becomes characterized as, you know, a pain in the ass. What you hear is, oh, I would spend every minute I possibly could looking out the window, looking at the Earth in the context of space and ideas like the one human family and all of us on this small planet together and the scale of the planet. That's what we kept hearing as the quintessential experience. So what space perspective does is take people in a spacecraft, a, a capsule that's pressurized with all of the life support systems and the like that a spacecraft needs. But rather than being on a rocket, it's under a very large balloon. This balloon is a little over 300 feet in diameter, about 100 meters in diameter. So you could take a you know a football field and spin it around inside when it's fully inflated. And in essence, floats on top of the Earth's atmosphere, sort of like an ice cube floats on top of water. So you're right at the edge of space and uh, creates a gentle environment where you can see the Earth for hours.
0: The capsule is beautiful. And it looks like it's going to be a completely different type of experience. Again, rather than having a rocket on your back and a space suit and all that other stuff, you're going to be able to kind of experience that in a very more natural way, right? So I think
1: that a large part of that experience is being relaxed and feeling secure and safe. You know, look, I I think the the rocket experience is going to be great for a lot of people. But I think that as far as we can tell, the vast majority of people really want that quintessential experience. And if they can do it without a rocket, all the better. So to put things in in context, we, we ascend at, you know, something like 18 kilometers an hour, you know, 10 or 11 miles an hour. So it takes us about... Two hours to get up to uh, apogee, where we're at, at uh, just over hundred thousand feet or thirty kilometers. So it's a very slow ascent, wherein the Earth essentially falls away underneath you. And what's interesting about that is it's been described as as being a way to really get how big the Earth is. One of that part of that quintessential astronaut experience is understanding the scale of the Earth, and because you ascend so slowly your mind can keep track of this changing scale. So, you know, you see the people that are by the capsule, the spaceport that you're launching from, the town that you're flying over. And as that scale falls away, by the time you see the curvature of the Earth, you really get how big the Earth is. And that is one of the things when in speaking with astronauts who sort of had that experience of getting a firsthand ability to understand the scale of the earth that that's a really important experience
0: yeah, and it's a profound type of experience, right? It wasn't not that the earth was so large from what I was reading, but even the 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 fact that the earth is kind of this small microcosm right in this vast space that we that we're in right and that it, it it kind of relates to how fragile our environment is that we're living in, right
1: you know it's easy. As we grew up to think, you know, you look up and you think that blue sky just seems infinite. And, you know, the distances of the planet seems so huge. And, you know, I've been interested in this scale idea for a long time. I went around the world, in essence, on the surface. I took the Trans-Siberian Railroad across Russia and sailed around most of the Earth. And it really gives you a sense of how big the Earth is when you travel around it at, say, 10 miles an hour. And so that aspect of the scale of the Earth, and when you start to get it firsthand, it's surprisingly small. You know, when you when you look at a globe and you think of how you know how far you've gone, say in a day of driving, you can go a pretty good chunk away around the Earth in just a day of driving.
0: Yeah. The other thing that was amazing to me is it seems to be driving towards making this attainable for the masses, right? I mean. I even loved the, the, the approach, right? You put a small deposit down now and book your flight out for, I think it's 2026 at this point. And it's really enticing, right? Uh, I know that there's a, a big bill when it come, <laughs> comes time to take flight, but, but still it's not $2 million, right? It's, it's much more attainable for a person to achieve, right? So the, the current you
1: know ticket price at the end after you put that deposit down is 125000 There is certainly a lot of development along the way that will allow us to bring that down over time, though the demand is so huge. I'm not sure exactly when we'll do that. You know, accessibility is, uh, we see it in a number of levels. One is the lower price. There's also organizations like Space for Humanity that are selecting and sponsoring people to send on Space Perspectives, Spaceship Neptune. So there's, there's a variety of ways to go that don't necessarily mean you have to uh, put all the money down. And there's also accessibility in we're sending student payloads on flights and, uh, you know, video downlink. So there's, there's lots of ways for people to be involved in flights. But, you know, I think one day if we really do this right, every school will have somebody who's been to space and can talk about that experience, right? It will be... It'll be a commonplace experience. It's sort of like you know going to Europe after high school. You know, it's the it's an experience that we think is an important part of a well rounded education, and an experience that people should should learn about at a young age. So I I really think that's part of broadening humanity's horizons, in essence.
0: Yeah, amazing. My wife can't even get me to go up in a hot, hot air balloon today. And I'm sitting here, I'm like ready to, you know, write out my check to, to put a deposit on, on one of these trips. <laughs> like I said, I think, uh, you know, I put in my notes, it's like, it's brilliant, right? You put $1,000 down, I mean, which is very little for a deposit. And you have an opportunity to, to take one of the earlier flights, right? So I know it's a few years away. Actually, how many years away do you think you, you, you see this happening?
1: Well, I think we'll be in human flight at some point. The schedule is showing late twenty four, maybe earlier, maybe later, but that kind of of time frame. And then twenty four is sold out. I think twenty five is nearly sold out. Yeah, the the tickets are
0: going fast. I'm going to start saving now. It's <laughs> a, you
1: know it's a refundable deposit too, so it's not <laughs> uh it's you know it's not a a locked in commitment. But I think a lot of people are exactly as you're saying, they're really intrigued and they want to get their place in line. And uh, it's awesome.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's great. Now, will you and Jane be the first uh, two human passengers? I think
1: it'll be hard to keep us from being the first ones (laughs) to go, but uh, that decision hasn't been made.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're looking forward to it. Now, actually, you have lifted Trial balloons, right, and and actually, I think there was a there was a project there. We there was a skydiver, right, for lack of better terms, that was elevated, right,
1: right. So the first human flight that we did was was a project called stratx, The goal of the StratEx project was to set the record for human flight under a balloon in altitude, and to uh, set the record for skydiving from, you know, diving from the edge of space. And uh, Alan Eustace was behind that project and he came to us to do all the technology of a transsonically stable spacesuit for skydiving down and all of the equipment and systems for keeping him alive and comfortable during the ascent and then coming back down. And there's actually a really fun movie about that whole project called 14 Minutes from Earth but that uh, set, uh, Alan set the record for human flight under a balloon and skydiving back down to Earth. And actually, we, you know, we're really proud of not only what we learned from that, but uh, the, all that flight hardware is now in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum.
0: The flight itself, it goes from land to space down and it lands in water on the end. Is there, was there any significance to that, why it lands, uh, finishes its trip in in the sea? We, you know, for a long
1: time thought about how to do a land landing. And it turns out that in essence, to do a land landing, you have to fly to a point on the earth, your landing strip, your landing field. So that means that you have to control the descent and change from balloon flight to an aerodynamic flight, which had a lot of safety concerns and a lot of developmental concerns. And we really looked at how to do that quite a long time. With a splashdown, in essence, that changes to needing to predict the location of where the balloon's going to go and then, in essence, move the splashdown location to that place, i.e. move the recovery ship to the splash location. What that allows is much more scaling. We can grow the company much faster. We can grow the operations much faster because now we can launch from land and there is, you know, the the earth is mostly covered in water. So there's lots of great places to launch from and splash down. And we're also looking at uh, launching from a ship and splashing down where we then can control both the launch point and the splashdown point. So it, it really opens up scalability. It, uh, it turns out in the end is a fantastic enhancement to safety, just making routine operations possible. So it's it's one of those things that was initially sort of counterintuitive, but with some uh, open-minded work, really, it turns out to be the best way to do it. Well, will there be any na- navigation aids on the capsule itself, thrusters
0: or anything of the sort?
1: No, we, we won't have things like thrusters, but we do control when we begin to descend to a degree, how quickly we descend. And so uh, we just did a test flight in June uh, called Neptune 1, where we launched from the spaceport uh, just outside here at Kennedy Space Center. And we ascended and then crossed the peninsula of Florida and splashed down about 50 miles offshore in the Gulf. And that was really in large measure a test of the overall concept of operations. We tested how we launch, how the system behaves on ascent, and tested our models of how well we can predict exactly where that splash location will be, and can we move the recovery ship to that splash location. And it worked brilliantly. We had the ship exactly where we wanted uh, the recovery ship to be, They witnessed the splashdown and did the recovery. Uh, So we were really able to validate sort of that one piece that we hadn't in previous balloon flights done before of, of this particular concept of operations through all of its different stages.
0: Sounds like you're ready to go. It's unfortunate we have to wait a few years.
1: <laughs> so. Well, you know, you, got, you have to be methodical about these things.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Actually, I was going to ask you, too, is, you know, in terms of government compliance, uh, flight compliance, I'm sure there are a lot of regulations and government bodies kind of overseeing how this is going to take place. I mean, has that been a real challenge for, for space perspective to deal with?
1: In no small measure, thanks to the Commercial Spaceflight Federation, and I think a really uh, well-led FAA Office of Commercial Spaceflight. No, we we really get a lot of cooperation from the FAA. They're very strongly supporting commercial development. You know, this is a large part of you know, America's leadership in space. Is a regulatory environment that enables. Uh, entrepreneurs to develop new technologies and offer new services. And that's really well recognized by the FAA. They have a very, very clear charter to protect the safety of the uninvolved public. And they do that very well. But no, I actually, you know, know, the knee jerk reaction is often to berate the government. But in this case, (laughs) I can't do that. They actually do a really good job.
0: That's uh, good. It's, it's phenomenal to see a revival in space, interest in space and space travel, and just see kind of how quickly and how far it's progressed just even in the last 10 years. It's just amazing. I was very young when the, the space program was at its peak and you kind of saw a real big lull for a very long period of time. And so now you see this, this, this revitalization, resurgence of interest and development even you know at Siemens I've been spending a lot of time working with startup companies and I just it just amazes me how many companies are developing tech for new space uh, exploration and uh it's amazing it's fascinating to see actually the your application here too goes well beyond just transporting people in, into the edge of space too you have other ambitions to do payloads and other exercises can you elaborate on that a little bit sure the interesting thing about
1: our flights is that we do a large number of them. And while they're, you know, six to eight hours long, because we're doing so many flights in an experimental sense, we get a very large end number. We get a very large number of times we've done a given experiment. So a great example of that is what isn't that well understood is how quickly the lower atmosphere, the troposphere, mixes into the stratosphere, the next layer up. Our flight goes deep into the stratosphere. And the important part about that upward mixing rate is we release carbon dioxide and other global warming gases at the surface. And to a large degree, that blanket, that warming blanket is the gases in the stratosphere. So how quickly those gases mix up into the stratosphere is an important part of how we model and predict global climate change Well, we don't have a good sense of that mixing rate. But if we carry instruments and monitor very carefully the carbon dioxide and methane levels as we ascend up and cross into the stratosphere, we can get data that will give us what the mixing rate is on that given day for that given set of conditions. And then by doing that hundreds of times, we'll be able to understand the variability, what changes that mixing rate how high it is really, with a small number of those kinds of measurements, you're never sure if you really got a statistically valid number of measurements. But by being able to do this hundreds of times through different seasons, we're able to get a really unique data set. So we're really excited by the ability to give researchers a very large number of flights to really move some uh, a range of science into a new level with, with really good, statistically valid experimentation.
0: I also read someplace that uh, you and Jane had aspirations of of going to Mars. Is that still part of the plan? <laughs> uh, well, it's
1: always part of the plan, uh, you know, <laughs> a distant part. Uh, you know, so we spent a long time, uh, you know, in Biosphere 2 was was a technology suite for Living on other planetary bodies, uh, you know, all life as we know it is in the context of a biosphere. We also developed a lot of technologies. We have a water recycling technology that is now being tested on the International Space Station that's intended for deep space flight to really recycle that last little bit, all the water that's being generated in the space flight. So, uh, having spent so much time developing the technologies. Uh, and
0: access. Yeah, we'd love to go. Okay. My wife asked me a fascinating question last night. She says, okay, you can recycle this water. You know, it's kind of a little bit tough for the common person to kind of absorb how that water gets recycled. But she says there's got to be some level of dehydration through that process, right? And so over time, does the, does the water deplete, the water source itself deplete? It turns out that we make a lot of water
1: by uh, metabolizing food. We, we eat carbohydrates and that hydrate part of the carbohydrate becomes water that's available. So long as you can capture that water in a recycling system that really sort of squeezes out that dehydrates exactly everything else out of the wastewater streams and human waste. And so that turns out to be sort of the key to making these closed loop systems work is uh, understanding What water becomes available as a byproduct of metabolism, and then having technologies available to capture that water.
0: Okay, so now I can give her an answer. (laughs) So one last question. We'll kind of shift gears a little bit. So uh, I I just thought this was interesting when I read this article. The headline was "The Husband and Wife Team Taking on Bezos, Branson, and Musk." Do you see yourselves that way, or you know, do you see it as a competition, or do you see it kind of as more of a collaboration?
1: You know, it's a little bit of both. I think. Certainly, there's a sort of a friendly colla- uh, competition going on where you know, we think we have a good answer. They've got a good product. I think in the end, what we'll find is that the market is so huge that all of us are really operationally limited. We will be able to expand for quite a while without there being sort of a direct competition. What we're actually finding is that people who buy tickets on these other folks also want to fly with Space Perspective because it's such a different experience. So in that degree, it's not too competitive, but it's always good to have uh, somebody there to uh, sort of spur you on. So I think that the friendly competition is great. You know, it's fun to be up against the billionaires. That's uh, always good. But in the end, I think what we what we find is that the collaboration
0: is really most important for all of us. Just to ask is, have they taken interest? Do you think they're going to become part of the Space Perspective initiative? The
1: interest so far has been really more just being very, very helpful. We've worked with SpaceX a lot over the years as both contractors and and collaborators and partners. And across the board, we find Virgin and Blue Origin and SpaceX to really be super helpful. I, I would say we benefit from that relationship quite a bit. They're they're great folks to work with. They have all accomplished amazing things. I think we, we really benefit from a lot of, both in a regulatory sense and a technical sense and an operational sense, from the work that they've done.
0: Well, you're in great company down there in uh, Cape Kennedy. I mean, there's, they're all right there on site, right?
1: Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, it's a great environment to work in. Very exciting.
0: So shifting gears a little bit, I'll talk a little bit about Siemens, um, just a little bit of insight, how Space Perspective was drawn to Siemens. And I know that the collaboration has been phenomenal so far, and I really appreciate you taking the time today. And you also did a little bit of a video series for us, which was fantastic. Got to personally appreci- uh, tell you how much I appreciate that. And thank you. But you're using our products now, and maybe you can share a little insight on that part of it.
1: Sure. Yeah, we did a pretty broad trade for looking at how we do the analysis and design development and what that tool suite looks like. And in essence, a modern spacecraft is first designed digitally and then rendered into physical manifestations. So the quality of those tools is important. And that wasn't so much for us, though a big part of it, obviously it's a fantastic tool set, but the the ability to interlink the tools really was one of the bigger parts for us. The ability to have a you know a radiative model, a CFD model linked to a, an overall simulation really made was an important part of this for us. And let me explain a little bit why. Uh, you know, it's it's fun that you uh, see on Siemens often that you know sea, air, and space are sort of the the environments that uh, Siemens is great to work in. And we are in all of those. We float at the end of the flight on sea and we have that whole environment of of buoyancy and thermal control, stability. We ascend slowly through all the major layers of the atmosphere. Some of those are really cold, minus 90 degrees C air uh, in the tropopause. So air is a huge part of our environment. And of course, when we're at the edge of space, our environment is is exactly the same as the International Space Station, SpaceX Crew Dragon, we're in a radiation environment. And then we turn all that around and go back down through all those environments. So having a simulation suite that could handle and interlink all those environments in a mission plan and run through a simulated mission uh, with the different environments and environment, corner cases put together was really for us sort of the, the I think, the, the part that really won us over. And then, frankly, we've been getting great support you know, whenever we've got a question and people are learning the tools. It's been really easy to jump on a call and, and get support. So those two things together really, uh, really put it together for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you from our side, and this is exactly the reason why we created these startup programs and these startup bundles, right? First of all, to make it accessible for smaller companies that are just in the earlier stages of their development, but to enable companies to start that digitalization journey right from the get-go, right? Uh, we found many, many companies out there that were, because of financial reasons or whatever the re- reasons were, were taking point tools on, right? And then they'd run into a roadblock six, nine months down the road, and. And one of the things that really got excited got us excited about space perspective is the you embraced this whole digitalization concept from, from the first day, right? Tying your design with simulation and and modeling the entire system uh in, in a more complete way. That was just fantastic for us. You know, we we reached out a number of times, we've been talking to you folks, it's been fantastic. It seemed it's amazing to, to see how advanced and how quickly. Your team is coming on board, utilizing the technology and and deploying the technology in in a a very meaningful way. So it's been fantastic.
1: There is the saying, you know, uh, paralysis by analysis, right? You, You can get into a mode where you're forever just doing and refining your analysis. And I think that, you know, is a model that has got a lot of areas where commercial space has really stepped away from that to a test rapidly, many test cycles. But one of the things that really moved us towards Siemens was the ability to do these integrated analyses, but also support testing on a rapid cycle. So we need to test and develop very, very quickly in a series of, of subsystem cycles and then full system cycles. And we needed tools that could support that testing cycle. So it's not so much that Well, well, it is that we have to create a digital version of the vehicle, but we also have to be able to change that digital version of the vehicle rapidly so we can keep up with testing. We can't have a long analysis cycle after a test, right? The testing has to be what's pacing, not the analysis cycle. And the flexibility of the tools really made us gravitate that direction.
0: And do you see this uh, kind of helping in a sense of not having to maybe do as many deployments downstream in order to test the vehicle, the whole system itself? And so that's the, the, that's the great balance, right? We're all trying
1: to hit this balance where if you are too heavy on analysis, you're going to go slower. If you're too heavy on testing, you're going to do tests you didn't otherwise need to do, right? So there's, right. there's a sweet spot in there between yeah. analysis and test. And I've certainly you know, seen and been involved in projects where we did wrapped around the axle of hardware too early, and I've, I've and I've been in the opposite. So what we're really trying to hit is a balance between the two. We're already developing breadboards of systems and mockups of systems that are being reflected in the analysis that we're doing. So it's the ability to keep those two things linked and find the right balance to where. Uh, the analysis is supporting, but not sort of
0: holding up a testing cycle perfect um, shifting gears once again, and you have a lot of experience with startup companies and and being involved with many different organizations through your career. We hope to attract some younger entrepreneurs and and uh you know other early stage companies to be listening to these podcasts and always like to get people's perspective on on what they see as kind of a any secret sauce to success that you might be able to share, or in wisdom you can impart upon upon the other listeners?
1: <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of secret sauces. I think you know you have to be passionate about what you're doing. You have to really you know, believe in the mission of the company. And, you know, I think that's you know, critically important to being successful in an entrepreneurial environment because you know it's hard. You 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 go through fundraising cycles and, you know, test development cycles. And there's, you know, great days and, uh, you know, and test failures. And you have to enjoy the day to day of, of what you're doing and be passionate about the day to day of what you're doing. And then a lot of people sort of get into that mode and drop the discipline and rigor. You have to be just as disciplined and just as rigorous as you are passionate Because it really is in the details. It really is in the kind of discipline you have in doing a flight, Uh, you know, from launching through flight, through recovery. You know, for us, it's a very, very disciplined process. We practice over and over and over again, you know, test over and over and over again to be sure we're going to get it right. It's a mix of those two things. You know, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. But you also have to have the rigor and discipline to see the reality of the situation that you're in. So I think it's, it's balancing, balancing those two things is really the key to it. James Stockdale, Admiral James Stockdale, who is an amazing career, said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. Well, he was talking about being a prisoner of war in the Vietnam War. But I think that that idea that those two things can exist side by side, the discipline and the faith, is something that uh, is an important idea for me. And then the other one that I think is fun is the saying, I don't know where it came from, you work on the company, not in the company. You need to grow and make the company great. So I think those are the two pieces of advice I'd give.
0: (laughs) Well, I think the conversation that we just had exemplifies both those. I mean, there's no question in every and all the research I did prior to, to our conversation. And today you exude an incredible amount of passion and it's inspirational. It really is. It truly is inspirational. And then. The way that, uh, you know, Space Perspective has approached its design and rigor around the simulation and the digitalization strategy validates that second element, right, is having that rigor and discipline to, to do it right from the get-go. So and I truly mean that it's uh, been inspiring and, and wonderful to speak with you. So I want to thank you again for your time. I think we're kind of well past uh, our typical time slot. So I want to thank you very, very much. Any parting words for our audience? The only thing I'd leave people with is, uh, you know, follow your bliss,
1: follow your passion. That's incredibly important. And keep up the discipline. Thanks.
0: And get your deposit in, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. SpacePerspective.com. <laughs> Space. wow. <laughs> there you go. Space perspective. Yeah, exactly. So I want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast. We truly hope you found it interesting and inspirational. At Siemens, we do understand that getting a startup off the ground is not an easy endeavor and is incredibly challenging. And at Siemens, we're offering programs, packages, software solutions to align with your budgets and your technology direction. So please visit us uh, for more information at www.siemens.com slash software for startups. This is Paul Musto, and thank you again for listening to our uh, startup podcast. Let me know what you think of this episode by leaving a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or email me directly at paul.musto at siemens.com. And remember, innovation has no boundaries.